All right, we are starting a new series in Genesis, and I'm very excited about this. Um, so you can turn to uh, Genesis in your Bibles. Um, it's page one in your pew Bible. <laughs> the first subject of the first verb of the first sentence in the first book of the Bible is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it won't be till later in the chapter that you'll even meet any other characters in the story at all. In fact, they won't even be named when you do meet them until chapter two. The main character of our story is God. And that's true of the whole Bible. And it's true of reality, the Christian life. It's not primarily our story. It's God's story. It's not about us, it's about him. And so we only understand ourselves rightly in relation to him, when we understand him rightly. And this point is crucial because the most natural thing in the world for us to do is to look to the scriptures for answers about us, answers about our world and our perspective and what we are like. So every ancient culture, uh, as far as I know, every culture has its own creation story. It doesn't matter if you're going to Native American tribes or you're going to India or you're going, it doesn't matter. Everyone has a creation story, right? And scholars of these stories will tell you almost universally that they are written to answer the question, how did this all come to be? That's why these stories were written, right? So in other words, other cultures, ancient creation stories say, explain me, explain my world. And the Bible is wildly different from that. The story we get in Genesis comes to us and changes the topic of conversation. And instead of saying, explain me in my world, it says, tell me about God. Because if God created everything and if he made us in his image and we're created with a purpose, then we can only understand who we are and what our purpose is if we know God and who he is. That's how we are to understand ourselves. So if we're coming to Genesis 1 with questions of evolution, Big Bang Theory, how many days the world was created in, etc., we might get a little frustrated because that's not what it's about. That's not why it's written. But if we come to Genesis 1 with questions about what God is like, we'll find some comfort, some soul food. So with that in mind, we're going to read from Genesis 1, and then we're going to look at it under two main headings, who is God and who are we? So let's read from Genesis 1, verse 1 through verse 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This is the word of the Lord. So point number one, who is God? Well, there's cosmology, 
which is the study of the universe, of the cosmos, right? And Genesis 1 does describe the origins of the universe, but it's not primarily a cosmology. There's anthropology, which is the study of humans, anthros, man. And Genesis 1 does describe the origin of humanity, but it is not primarily an anthropology. And then there's theology, which is the study of theos, of God. And that's exactly what Genesis 1 is about. So who is God is the appropriate question to start with when we start with this book. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into a person's mind when he first thinks about God is maybe the most important thing about that person. And I think he's right. Because what we believe about God, which is our theology, and we're all theologians, by the way, we all think something about God, right? Our theology will completely shape the way we are, and the way we live. So we'll either believe the Bible and move toward God in love and admiration, or we will reject it and move away from God in disbelief and disdain. What we think about God will shape us. So let's um, look at three aspects of who God is then from Genesis 1 and let that theology shape us this morning. So the first thing that we learn about God is that God is the creator. It's not a description of what he's like. It's a description of what he does. Isn't that interesting? Hebrew narrative, which is, this is obviously written in ancient Hebrew. uh, It has a very particular way of writing and telling stories. It's famously sparse. They use as few words as possible to get across their point, which means that every word is actually dripping with meaning. It's a load-bearing word in some sense. It's a very sparse language. The closest to it in English literature that I know of is Ernest Hemingway. If you've ever read Hemingway, it's very almost jolting and sparse and jerky in its language. So Hebrew narrative, they found beauty in letting a person's actions speak louder than the descriptions about the person. Now, there's lots of poetry which describes and finds beauty in describing God, but you'll find that Genesis 1 opens with letting the actions of God speak first before we get to the descriptions of God. And so the first thing we learn is what he does, that he is the creator of everything. It says he created the heavens and the earth. That's what's called a mirrorism. It's when you take two opposites and, and kind of encompass everything that comes in between them. So A to Z would be something like a mirrorism. And the point is that when it it says God created the heavens and the earth, it's saying he made everything. Matter, energy, time, space, everything. That's what God made. So the plain teaching then of the Bible is that behind everything that exists is a beautiful mind, is a purpose. And so if God created everything, then the natural order that we experience and that we study in science is his idea. Quantum physics and metaphysics are God's ideas. Math was in the mind of God. (laughs) The event horizons of black holes, billions of light years away that only God will ever see are his idea for his glory. So because of that, no scientific method or theory can threaten our belief in our creator we don't have to be afraid of the Bible. We don't have to be afraid of science either, friends. All science and rationalism itself actually flows from God. He's the creator of all. 
So that's the first aspect of who is God. God is the creator. Second, God is the free and generous creator. Free and generous. Now, other ancient Near Eastern people groups had their own creation stories, as we've mentioned. And a lot of them have survived today. I've read all of them that I can get my hands on. They're very interesting. They're very weird. Some of them are very gross. But there, there are some similarities to Genesis 1. But the, the fact is our creation story, our true story, God's word to us was artfully crafted to be in conversation with the other creation stories that existed when it was written. Okay, uh, But when I say that Genesis is in conversation with them, I'm not talking about friendly debate and dialogue. It's polemics. He's, Genesis is making an argument for the truth of who God really is against all of these other backdrops of the ancient Near Eastern creation stories. So Genesis 1 squares off against the Akkadian Atrahasis epic and the Babylonian Enuma Elish and the Sumerian Eridu Genesis and all the other really nerdy, weird old things. And it's not so much like them as it's profoundly unlike them. Here's why. In the creation stories of Egypt, Sumeria, and Babylon, and all the rest, there were multiple gods and they created humans out of need. The gods were hungry. So they said, let us make man to feed us. Or the gods were at war. And so they said, let us create humans to fight our battles against each other because we're angry with each other and jealous. Or the gods were lazy. So they created humans to tend their flocks of cattle and sheep. That is in common with all the other creation stories. But when we're introduced to God, singular, in Genesis 1, he has no need. He's not at war, he's not hungry, and he's not lazy. In Genesis 1, God, in the beginning, he's already there. He already exists, which means he is self-existing. He has life in and of himself. Therefore, he has no needs whatsoever. No one can add to God. No one can take away from God. He doesn't need us. So that can't be why he created. There are no external pressures that forced God to create because there is nothing external before he created. It's him. That's why he says to Moses, when Moses says, what's your name? What should I tell them? He says, I am who I am. I am. He is the existent one. He exists. It's who he is. More than that, the, the word for God in, the, in verse one here, in the beginning, God, it's Elohim. Now, the singular in Hebrew is El, the plural is Elohim. The word for God, when we meet God in the Bible, is plural. But the verb created is singular, which in Hebrew either means Moses was really bad at grammar because that's not how Hebrew works, or there is one God in multiple persons doing one unified action, which is creating. In other words, here we already see the groundwork for what we would come to call the Trinity being laid, three persons in one God. The triune God met here as speaker, speech, and spirit, if you will. He already is in himself a community. Have you ever thought of the Trinity that way? 
He doesn't need us for love or worship or glorifying himself because he has from the, before the beginning of time, eternity past, been in himself a community of love and mutual uplifting and glorifying each other. He is himself a community of love. He does not need us to feel good about himself. That can't be why he created. Our triune God is free from all need and pressure. Therefore, all of his creative acts are generous. Sheer gift. Out of an abundance of his own joy and love. That's why he creates. We are not created as plebs to grovel before God. We are not created because God needs us to worship and love him. We are given life because God himself, in and of himself, is teeming with life and longs to share it with others. That's amazing. So God is a creator. God is the free and generous creator. And lastly, God is the free and generous creator who loves beauty, light, and life. Now, um, in, the, in this story of Genesis 1, this is a subplot, a story within a story of the larger plot because God chose to give us this first book of the Bible as a narrative, which in and of itself is awesome. And the plot conflict, because every story has a conflict, the plot conflict of Genesis 1 is found in verse 2. Let me read it again. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The earth was formless. In other words, it was uninhabitable. We know this is the story of how God created life, but here we meet the earth and it can't sustain life at the beginning of our story. And then it was void, formless and void. It was not just uninhabitable, it was, uh, or uninhabited, it was uninhabitable, or the other way around. In other words, it had no form to sustain life and it had no life to fill that form, right? It was formless and empty. And there was no light for life, just darkness over the face of the deep. The deep, dark chaos waters to the ancient peoples always represented death and danger. Everything unpredictable, the word catastrophe comes to mind. So how does the story resolve this plot conflict? Well, this is um, mildly technical and nerdy, but I really uh, love this, and I hope that you can see how amazingly cool the Bible is. Um, it's not just, well, anyway... God loves order. So he ordered even the text of the Bible to reflect his love for beauty, his love for order and orderliness. So there are six days of creation and then one day of rest at the end. So seven days total, right? The first six days of creation are split into two groups of three and they relate to each other. So two panels of three days to accomplish a specific design to aid the telling of the story who loves beauty and light and life. So day one, if we can go to the next slide, day, day one, God separates or God creates light and he separates day and night and creates those two realms. The realm of day and night, he formed the realms. Remember, the, the issue is the world is unformed and the world is emptied. Days one through three, he forms the realms. So he forms the, uh, the realms of the day and night. Then he separates the sky and the seas and forms the realm of the heavens. Now, the, uh, just as an aside, 
in the ancient Hebrew mind and in most of the other regions around there in the ancient Near East, they viewed kind of the universe, as you will, as a water thing, just waters, the waters above, the waters below. And they viewed the kind of, the, the, here's why, rain, right? You've got water on the ground, sure, but then water comes from up there somewhere. So how do you explain that? Um, so they viewed the um, separation of the waters above and waters below as the sky, the gap between those two things they called it the skies or the heavens. So anyway, in in day two, God creates the realm of the sky. And then in day three, he creates dry land out of the midst of the waters below, and he separates the land from the sea. And then seeds of new life emerge from the dry land. God forms the cosmos in days one through three in preparation for life. In those realms, realms of day and night, skies and seas and land. In days four through six, he fills the realms he's just formed. Do you see? Day one, the realm of day and night is filled by the sun, moon, and stars. Then the skies are filled with birds and the seas with sea creatures and the land with beasts and then the pinnacle of creation with humans. There is a symmetry and an artfulness, a creativeness and a storytelling-ness <laughs> to this. It's incredible. But it's not just there to be cool. It's there to demonstrate and illustrate the reality that God loves beauty and light and life and orderliness. And he's baked it into creation and he's baked it into you and I as well. God is and always has been the free and generous God who creates beauty from chaos and life from death and light out of darkness. It's what he does. And where they're not found in the story of Genesis 1, where there's no light, where there's no life, and where they're not found today, he creates. And he does it in the same way now that he used to, by his word and by his spirit. We'll get to that more in a moment. So that's the first section, who is God? Number two, who are we? Who are we? Um, The Bible does have a lot to say about anthropology, but only ever in relation to theology. I'm just going to keep hammering that point home. We exist in relation to God. So let's read now from uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 29. 1, 26 to 29. This is on day six of creation, filling the realm of the land. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. We're going to look at this passage more next week, but Genesis is in many ways the story of human flourishing. 
It's a story of God's commitment to human flourishing. But a created thing can only flourish when it's functioning like it was made to function. So once I was, this is a terrible example, but it's the best I have. Once I was running late for a business meeting and my shirt collar was very rumpled and I could not find our iron. So I found Becca's curling iron and, and I discovered, <laughs> um, I think you know exactly what I discovered. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? That's not what it's made to do. And it left kind of a disastrous um, curled collar. Uh, <laughs> Conversely, there's an incredible pleasure in a thing working exactly like it's supposed to, isn't there? I mean, those of you who are kind of mechanically minded, are like, you get this. There's a pleasure when you've been working on a car and you finally turn that key and it roars to life. You're like, yes, that's exactly what I was hoping for. It did what I wanted it to. When I was a kid uh, in the late 90s, I started building computers and, you know, I went and bought the motherboard and the CPU and the RAM and the hard drive and all these bits, the floppy drive, all these bits. And, you, and I put them together and the pleasure of seeing that black and green MS-DOS prompt, it worked. <laughs> it's amazing. We are created. We're made things. We have a purpose and a design. And we can only flourish when we live according to that. We're made as finite creatures, limited people with weaknesses. Being finite and limited and weak is not a product of the fall. That was God's design for us. Sometimes you need to know it's okay to be tired and to be out of energy. We're never meant to bear the burdens, the creator-sized burdens on our shoulders. We're creatures. We're created things. So being a creature means two basic things. One is we're meant to live in constant dependence on God. We are not, is it what, deists that believe that God created the world and then just stepped back and said, good luck, I'll watch from here. I hope it works out. God is actively involved with the management of his world and his people. He cares. He sustains his creation. He holds all things together, Colossians 1 tells us. So we are meant as creatures to live in active, constant dependence with God, to God, on God. We bring him our finitude and our limitations and our weaknesses. And that's kind of a part of the second thing which it means to be created, which is we're made to worship. We are made to worship. Because everyone is created, everyone is a worshiper of something or someone by default. You don't have to invite people when you're evangelizing to start worshiping. They're already worshiping something. We're all worshiping something. But true, proper worship is when we have the posture of a created person before our creator. So we see that all the good things are from him and we thank him. We see that he is beauty, light, and life, so we praise him. We see that he decides what is good, not us, so we obey him. That's worship. Earlier with, with the, um, the, the team that's here uh, to rehearse the, the music at eight o'clock, we were going through Isaiah 55 and saw that God describes 
worship that is meant to truly satisfy as hearing God, doing God's word, and delighting in God. We're, we're made for that. That's what human flourishing looks like. If we finally start acting like the creatures, the created people that we really are, <laughs> then we can finally find lasting pleasure and joy in worship. Worship should be delightful, and it can be. That's why we learned with the kids this morning, what is our only hope in life and death? This is a test, kids. Are you listening? <laughs> no, they weren't. <laughs> what is our only hope in life and death? Yeah, well done. Well done. We are not our own. We belong to God. That is our only hope in life and death. It's the only place our, we can find our satisfaction. It's the only lasting delight is in the worship of God. So that's the first thing about who are we as we're creatures. Second, we are dignified creatures. True human dignity does not come from our achievements or our moral perfection or from anything else. True human dignity comes from God. It's not about you. It's about him. He dignifies us. We are made inherently noble because we're made in his image. So humans were created on the sixth day, as we saw, and the um, kind of hierarchy of creation puts humans at the top under God, who takes his throne on the seventh day and rest, as it were. But humans are the pinnacle of creation. They're the most God-like thing that God made. If you want to see something of God and his authority, don't go on a hike, go to church. God made us in his image to rule, to reign. He says, to ha he says ha all those three realms that we talked about, right? The days one through three, he, he says, let's make man in our image. Now let's give them dominion over all of it. The skies, the seas, the land, they're gonna rule all of that. What could be more dignified than God sharing his glory? He is not stingy. He's not miserly with his power and authority. He wants us to stand tall as image bearers of God and join him in bringing beauty and light and life to this dark and disordered world. No pagan God ever did that. Not one. Now, the, the phrase, the image of God, was very familiar to all, to the Akkadians and the Egyptians and the Babylonians, the Sumerians that we talked about they often would talk about the image of God, but what they meant was the king. The ruler of the people was the sole image of their gods. The people are plebs. They're just nobodies, they're peasants. They're meant to serve the king because he's like God. God democratized his image. Everyone every human is noble and has dignity because they're all made in the image of God. They're all made to rule, to be blessed by God, to represent his authority and his power and his goodness. So he blessed them with fruitfulness. This Genesis 1.28, he said, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. 
He blessed them with authority. He blessed them with all the abundance they'll need to flourish. Notice on day three, he does, God does two things. One is he forms the dry land out of the waters. And two, he plants a bunch of seeds in the ground. Why? In anticipation of day six. When he gives all the food that he planted on day three to the humans so they can rule all those realms. He gives us all that we need. The rest of Genesis will show us that God's desire to bless us is not contingent on our performance and our perfection or our usefulness. God doesn't say, I, I want to bless you, but only if you, only if you do the right things, only if you really truly represent what I look like. No, God, Genesis is the story of God's relentless determination to bless his people in spite of themselves, not because of them. We'll get to that in a few weeks uh, and then we'll never stop getting to that because it's the point. When we get to the fall and God turns around and is merciful, we spit in his face and he chases us down with love. No pagan God ever did that. Lastly, uh, we are dignified creatures made for beauty, light, and life. God is a God of order and the creator of life, and then he tasks us to go image him in the world that he made by continuing to bring order, beauty, light, and life to this world. But after sin enters the world, which again will come too soon, we become disordered, and our hearts are plunged into darkness. Augustine used to say that our loves are disordered. We have disordered loves. In other words, if love and worship, which is really the same thing, if love and worship was a laser beam, we aim it everywhere but God. We're disordered. We're unfocused from the proper object of our love and adoration. Frankly, sin makes us forget that we're created. We think, I deserve this. I can control this. I can say what's right and wrong. We act like we're the creator. And so we find that we need God to reorder our loves. We need God to recreate us, to restore order, to bring light and life to our darkened and dead hearts. We need to be made a new creation. And God creates new light and life in us, just as he did in Genesis 1, by his word and by his spirit. The word of God, spoken to create the cosmos in Genesis 1, puts on creaturely flesh in John 1, in the person of Jesus. And he took our sins of rebellion and disorder, and he, he died for them. He plunged into the dark chaos waters of death in our stead, and like the dry land that would emerge out of the dark waters on the third day, so did he. And by his spirit, which hovered over those dark waters, fluttering like an eagle over its nest in preparation for the hatching of its young, by his spirit, when we put our faith in him, he unites us to himself and makes us a new creation. 
He reconciles us to the God that we disdained, and he reorders our loves. Yeah. Now we can walk in the light. As he is in the light, you have to be recreated to do that. Only in Jesus can we experience the pleasure and joy of rightly worshiping our creator because he's not just our creator, he's also our savior. We need him to be both. Now, as we move toward Holy Communion, I want to consider one last thing, which is what Genesis 1 and the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say about our identity. The Genesis scroll was written, you know, it was originally a scroll, not a book. It was written at a crucial moment in the history of the Hebrew people when they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And it was very likely completed and honed and finalized and compiled at another crucial moment of Hebrew history when they were freed from Babylon captivity over a thousand years later. And in both of those historical situations, the people of God had almost completely lost their identity. Trauma has a way of doing that to us. Everything that they could point to and say, this is who we are, was taken from them, whether by Egypt or Babylon. They were taken out of their ancestral lands. Their genealogical records were destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. Their religious artifacts were carried off and used for parties their whole ethnic and religious history and identity was effectively erased. But Genesis 1 gives us a new identity, and it gave them a new identity. Remember, when creation stories are made in a culture, it's to answer the question, explain me and my world. In other words, give me an identity. Who am I? How do I understand my place in this world and how to think about myself? Genesis 1 comes along tells us about God and says, here's your identity. You're a people lovingly created for the pleasure of worshiping our free and generous creator. That's who you are. You're made to worship God. And the gospel then goes even further. So in the ancient world, your identity was shaped by your ancestors and by their past, right? So you are a product of what happened to them. You're a product of your ancestral memory. In the modern day, our identity is shaped by what happened to us in our past. You are now a product of what happened to you. What was your childhood like? What were your parents like? What did you do in your teenage years, your early 20s? That's who you are, your own personal memory. The gospel gives us a new identity because it unites us to a new people and makes us a new person and unites us to a new person. In other words, we get in the gospel of Jesus a new memory, a memory which defines our identity. So think of it this way, in the Passover meal in Exodus, when the, when the Israelites were freed from Egypt and they started celebrating the Passover, the fathers of subsequent generations who were never in Egypt were instructed by Moses to say, I was a slave in Egypt, God freed me. They were instructed to talk about Abraham who lived centuries before and say, my father was a wandering Aramean. They're building their identity out of their ancestral memory. Now in the true Passover meal, the last supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. 
we get Jesus's memories and build our identity from his story because it's not about us. It's about him. He invites all people, no matter our past, no matter where our ancestors are from, to make the story of new creation your story. His past becomes your past. Your identity is located in Christ. So if we trust Jesus for salvation, we can say along with Paul, it's Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You ever just pause on that sentence for a minute? I'm dead. I'm not alive. Christ is alive. That's remarkable. If that's true of you, then you are what Paul would call in Christ. No sin can snatch you from his grip. No death can snuff out your life. No darkness can dim the light of Christ in you. And no chaos can undo you. That's an identity that no trauma can take from you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the first fruits of creation. That you stood up from the grave and began uniting people to your resurrected self so that we can say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving yourself for us. We praise you now. Amen.